Before we get started, it's been a while. Uh, let's take a moment, and for all the folks in Williamsburg, and for all the folks in Somerset, and all the folks in Middlesbrough, can we put our hands together and welcome them? We're so glad that they get to join us uh, for this part of the service. And then uh, to all of our uh, churches, I, I want to just say this. Next week, we were supposed to begin uh, a particular series, uh, but I just, I, I just couldn't get settled on it. And uh, so next week, I'm interrupting what was planned in order to talk about something that I've really had on my mind and in my heart. So next week, I hope that if you claim the Creek Church as your church, that you'll be here because we're going to be talking about something really important uh, for all of us. And, and I hope that you'll make next weekend a priority. Uh, with that said, uh, today um, is wrapping up a series that we've been in for the past four weeks. And for the past few weeks, uh, we've taken some time to ask some trusted older members uh, of another generation uh, to give us some words of advice, some words of counsel, uh, words of guidance, and, and more specific than that, words of wisdom. Uh, we've asked them to share with them the wisdom that they've gained over the years by looking back into their past. And if they would take a moment to look back in their past and share with us some lessons they've learned, uh, it may just help some of us uh, who will listen uh, to create a better future. And, and it doesn't matter what generation you're part of, uh, there's something in this series for everybody. Uh, back in week one, uh, the advice that we got was this, hey, be real careful what you chase after. Uh, be careful about chasing after the wrong thing and be careful about chasing after the right thing in the wrong way because it could be devastating if you catch it. Uh, week two, we talked about having a mentor you know, find out the type of future that you want and then go find someone who's already there and, and learn from them. Uh, follow their lead. And, and then last week we talked about don't be a whiner and don't be a quitter. You know, live life with some grit and some resilience and perseverance and determination. Uh, be aware that when you give in, you just may be giving up on something that's a really, really big deal. Uh, now today though, I think, uh, and again, we could, have, we could have gone on with this series for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we may revisit it sometime in the future. And I think we could do it bigger. I think we could do it better, but, but there's been so many great little tidbits that we could have talked about. But today, I think the most important thing uh, should be the last thing. And, and it's the most important piece of advice that any of us could hear and receive. And we're just gonna jump right in. And here, here's the advice, pay close attention uh, to what you believe to be true about God. So there were some older folks, uh, for whatever reason, they look back over their life and, and I, I read into it a little bit that maybe, you know, for a portion of their life or maybe a, a big portion of their life, uh, they just never really paid attention to what they believed about God until a moment when they realized that they believed some things about God that wasn't necessarily true about God. So there's some folks who, who you know, in their own way and in their own words, uh, they're saying to all of us, pay close attention Pay close attention, think about it, be thoughtful. Pay close attention to what you believe to be true about God because what you believe about God, it matters. What I believe about God matters. What you believe about God, it matters. The fact that someone believes in God, it matters. Matter of fact, it matters a great deal because whenever someone decides that they believe in a personal God, when, whenever someone believes that there is such a thing as a transcendent, uh, transcendent God, there's a number of implications that go along with that. Uh, whenever you decide that you believe in a personal transcendent God, um, the implication of that is that there's something bigger than you in the world. There's something bigger than me in the world. And that means that I cannot in good faith be the centerpiece of my own existence. I, I'm not in the middle of my own existence. That there's something else at the core. There's something else that's more important, that's greater than me, that's beyond me. Uh, whenever someone decides to believe in a transcendent 
personal God. It also means that my existence and your existence is not accidental and it's not incidental. It means that there's value and purpose woven into your existence. Not just, you know, ascribed purpose or ascribed value, but inherent purpose and inherent value. Uh, if there is a God who is personal and transcendent, that means that your life has purpose and value to it, uh, that your existence, it matters. And, and then, you know, among the many, many, many other things that we could talk about, you know, what does it mean when we say we believe in God? It means that I'm not God. And it means that you're not God. I'm not my own final authority. I don't get to make my own laws. I don't get to issue my own commandments. I'm not my own God. I'm not in control of anything save my own choices. And that's what it means when we say, hey, we believe in a God that is personal and transcendent. Uh, in other words, that someone believes in God is important. It, it is, it's important. But what someone believes about God is most important. Uh, you're here and you say, you know what, I believe in God. And, and that means some things. But the fact that you believe in God is not as important as what you believe about God. Believing in God is one thing. It's important. But what kind of God you believe in, that's far more important and far more consequential. It is extraordinarily consequential, the type of God you actually believe in. So here's a question that I want us to chew on. This is a question I want us to ponder, to wrestle with, to consider for the next few moments. What do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? What do I think about when I think about God? And I know we don't think about these types of questions very often, but we should. What do you think about when you think about God? What images come to mind? What scenarios come to mind? What thoughts come to mind? When you begin to consider the existence of God, you begin to consider the reality of God, that there is a God somewhere, that there is a personal transcendent God, what images come to mind? What thoughts come to mind? What assumptions do you have about God that are driving those images and those thoughts? Do you believe, do you assume that God is loving or do you assume that God's hateful? Uh, do you assume that God is compassionate or do you assume that God is calloused? Uh, do you assume that God is gracious or that God is abrasive? Is he merciful or is he vengeful? Is he attentive or is he aloof? Is he personally involved in your life and my life or is he just apathetic, distant, and removed? What do you assume to be true about God? Because everybody who believes in God, they're assuming some things to be true about God. What do you assume about how God thinks about you? Because God does think about you. And when God thinks about you, what do you assume God thinks? God has feelings when it comes to you. What do you assume those feelings are? What emotions, think about this for just a moment. What emotions begin to surface when you think about God? And I'm talking about you, you spend a moment and you contemplate not only the reality of the existence of God, but what type of God in reality exists. When you begin to think about God, what kind of emotions begin to settle in? Now, a lot of times we don't think about this long enough to pay attention to the emotions. But whenever you have thoughts about God, there's gonna be emotions that are attached to those thoughts. Is it joy or is it despair? What you think about God, does it bring you, I'm serious, does it bring you, this is important, does it bring you a sense of joy? Like, like joy that's difficult to explain or does it really, let's be honest, does it bring a sense of despair? Is it, is it life taking or is it life giving? 
Is it something that builds you up or is it something that somewhere deep on the inside that, that it feels like it's tearing you down? When, when you think about God, those thoughts and those assumptions about God, is it, is it more about guilt or is it more freedom? Do, do you sense emotions that come along with freedom that it's a little bit easier to breathe or do you just, does it just feel like guilt is always on the tail end of your thoughts about God? Does it make you feel emotions of confidence or, or shame, peace or unrest? When you think about God, pay attention to the emotions that tag along with those thoughts about God because they are very, very telling. They tell us a lot about what we truly believe, what we truly believe to be true about God. Now, here's the thing that I believe because I've been doing what, I, what I'm doing for, for close to 20 years now. I think that if the truth be told, there are a lot of people, maybe even including you, a lot of people even inside the local church, there are a lot of people walking around with what is a very toxic way of thinking about God. The way they think about God, it, it, it's poisoning, it's toxic, it's undermining. And, and oftentimes it's not even noticed. Uh, people are walking around inside of church, outside of church with an incorrect and incomplete idea about who God is and what he's like. It's not always completely incorrect, it's just incomplete. Sometimes it's incomplete and sometimes it's just outright incorrect. And a lot of times this goes without anybody noticing or paying attention because it's so deep. It's just so natural what we think and what we believe about God. And we end up carrying these disruptive and destructive ideas about God throughout life because many of us, we pick them up in childhood. Many of them, we pick them up from mom or from dad or from grandma or grandpa or from that Sunday school teacher or, or just listening, you know, growing up in the church or around the church or around some Christians, we would just listen from time to time. And sometimes it, it wasn't something that was explicit as much as it was implicit. And, and, and we read between the lines, sometimes maybe rightfully so and sometimes maybe wrongfully so, but we came out of childhood with some disruptive and destructive ideas about who God is and what he's like. And we carry them around so long, we don't even recognize that they're disruptive or destructive because we've been carrying them around for so long. Um, for example, you know, uh, some, some of your parents, some of our parents, uh, they would say things and they didn't mean anything necessarily to be bad about it. And they didn't mean certainly to inform us, you know, with a bad piece of theology, but, but we would just hear things and pick up on things. You know, maybe a parent would look at you and say, hey, I won't be there, but God's watching. God's watching. God's watching, he's got his eyes on you. Even when I don't have my eyes on you, he's gonna be watching. And, and I know what they're saying, but the idea was, what, what it made us feel like was that God's just waiting. He's waiting on you to mess up. He's gonna be watching, waiting for the moment that you drop the ball, that you fall on your face when you do what you're not supposed to do, that God's watching. He's waiting on you to mess up because the thing that God cares most about is your morality. It's your compliance. It's rule following, it's rule keeping, it's box checking. That, that's the thing that we came, along, we came away thinking, that God was most concerned about you know, how we behaved and how we performed. That, that God was most obsessed in all the universe, he was most obsessed with our morality and our compliance to the rules. Uh, and a lot of people, they, they've carried that around for their entire lives and it's extremely consequential. 
And that's why there's emotions, you know, of guilt and shame and a little bit of despair. And it's the reason it feels like it takes the breath out of you rather than breathing fresh air into you. Because some people are walking around and they think the thing that God cares most about is morality and compliance. And they're going through every day. God's watching, God's watching, God's watching. And it's like, you know, it's like walking on eggshells. For some people, they, they've carried around, you know, for most of their lives, the idea that God's angry. That God's just angry, and, and I get it. I mean, the way the preacher preached, he seemed angry. Like, why is he always so mad? I mean, he's banging on the pulpit. He's punching wood. He's slapping. It's like, what does this guy do at home with his family? I mean, he seems awfully angry. He seems like he's got a whole bent up, a lot of, you know, a lot of frustration. But he's talking about the judgment of God. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah gets in every other sermon, and there's fire and brimstone, and, and there's all this stuff. And it just seemed like, hey, all of that outweighed the mercy or the love or the grace or the goodness or any of those things. It was like, it was all just fear-based. It was like, you better get in or you're going to burn. You know, you better, you better change your ways or things are going to go really, really bad for you. And it was just kind of this God's anger, God's anger, God's angry. And when you listen long enough, it was as if they were saying, you know, God's got some enemies and he's coming after them and God is going to mow them down and God's going to take them out. And of course, the church people, we're not his enemies. You know, we're always on God's side. And, and that type of preaching and that type of idea and that type of thinking always feels us versus them type of thinking. Because when we believe that God has enemies and we believe that we are on God's side, then God's enemies become our enemies. And we end up seeing some people, not all people, but some people as enemies to defeat rather than neighbors to love and to serve. And so it's extremely consequential. For some people, this informs their politics. And the reason they're so angry at a portion of the world is because they believe that God is angry with a portion of the world. The way that they respond to certain things and certain issues and certain people and the way they choose to talk about it and how they choose to deal with those people when they encounter those people, it has a lot to do with how they think about God and how God would deal with that person and how God should deal with that person. And so this is incredibly consequential. Uh, then, then there's, you know, people who walk around with this idea that God is like a vending machine. And if I can just put in enough faith and enough faith and enough faith and enough faith, if I get enough faith in there, then I can just tap whatever I want and God's going to give me what I want and what I need. And God will answer my prayers. And, and then you live long enough that you know that that's either not true or you just don't have enough faith. And you've never had just enough faith to get the really, really, really big things answered. And so people walk around and they have all this despair and a little bit of frustration and anger at God because, you know, either, either God has such a high threshold of faith that I can't meet it or, or God just whatever uh, the case may be, he just refuses to involve himself in my particular situation. Uh, for some people, it, it's the idea of a scorekeeping God. That God's always keeping a record, always, always got his little book, always jotting down, never forgetting, never letting go of things. To which may be the reason why you know some people and I know some people that never forget things and never let go of things. And the reason that they deal with people relationally based on resentment and you know this, this grudge that they continue to have is maybe in some way connected to the way that they see God. Some people walk around with this payback, payback God type of, you know, type of idea that, that God's, gonna, God's not gonna let anybody get away with anything that he's gonna settle all scores sooner or later. I remember being told as a kid, you'll never, and this was, I didn't even realize how terrible the theology of this was until I grew up. But I, I heard on multiple occasions as a kid, you'll never get out of this life 
without paying for your sins. It's like, wow, my God, I'm going to be on a long payment plan. <laughs> the, the, the installments are, I, I just don't even know, God, I, I, I don't, do you want to get out of bed if it's that way? And then you grow up, and maybe you don't know this, and we'll get to it in just a moment. That's like the antithesis of the good news, that you have to pay for your own sin. I thought that was kind of the thing about, you know, Jesus and him paying for our sin and being the Savior of the world. Uh, so people walk around with some crazy ideas about God, and they don't feel consequential, but they are. Because in the end, they color the way that you see the world, circumstances, other people, and even the way that you see yourself. This is a really big deal, which is why we should always continue to ask questions like this. What is God like? What is he really like? What does God require? Really? What does God require? I'm not talking about Old Covenant. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about New Testament. I'm talking, what does God require? Don't quote me a minor prophet. Don't quote me a major prophet. Let's just, let's talk New Covenant. Let's not talk Israel. Let's talk church. What does God require? What is that? What does it look like? How does God feel about us, really? When God looks at me, when God looks at the world, when God looks at America, when God looks at Africa, when God looks at Europe, when God looks at South America, does God feel differently about different parts of the globe geographically? Does, does the name of the country change how God feels about the country? Does the way that people look and the way that the majority of those people believe change the way that God feels about the people inside? those geographical boundaries? What, what does God think about us? How does he feel about us? What grieves him? What brings him joy? How we answer those questions, among some others, begin to form the fundamental beliefs that we have about God that plays out in every area of our life. Uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, I, I wanna give this to you. It's a, it's a little wordy, but, but I, I think this is so good because he, he famously remarked, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. That is, whatever you believe to be true about God, you may not even realize it, but you are unconsciously moving in that direction and you will manifest those beliefs about God in your relationships with other people, in your relationship with yourself. That's the way it works, he says. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Now, uh, another, another guy came along, J.I. Packer, Packer, maybe you've read some of his works, Knowing God's one of the most formative books that I think I've ever, I've ever read. J.I. Packer, he said this, what you believe about God changes everything. It changes everything. It affects how you love, how you work, how you live, how you marry, how you parent, how you purchase and worship. Think of just a few popular views that people have about God. Is God an impersonal blob who is uninterested in the world except for figuring out who the good and the bad people are? Is that what God's all about? Is God, you know, like a karma vibe, making sure everyone gets what they deserve? Is God a myth 
uh, that weak, stupid, or oppressive people use to console themselves or dominate other people? Is God a cosmic cheerleader who's concerned mainly with helping you achieve immediate happiness and self-actualization? Or is God someone else? Whether we're aware of it or not, we all have ideas about who God is what he expects, and what our place in the world is. Our theology shapes how we live. For example, the more we understand God's grace towards us in Christ, the more we are freed and motivated to love God and others out of the abundant grace he's shown us. Grace motivates us. And then he says this, absolutely, I believe it to be true. We are all theologians. Doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know or doesn't know. We are all theologians. The question is, are our thoughts about God true? Are our thoughts about God true? How do we know if our beliefs about God, our assumptions about God are true? Well, Christians, Jesus followers, we believe that God has revealed himself. And that's good news. God, God didn't want to live isolated from us, but God wanted us to know him and God revealed himself to us. And Christians believe that God revealed himself to us in two arenas, one being creation and the other being the scripture. Uh, there's an idea that is threaded throughout the entire scripture that if you walk outside this evening or today and you look up, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, if you were to look through a telescope and to see the expanse of the universe or different galaxies, that there's something about that. There's a voice that you begin to hear in the deepest parts of your soul that reminds you how great, how big, how awesome, how powerful God is. And not only how big God is, but how small we must be. There, there's something within creation. There's a witness. There is a voice. Or as the psalmist said, that the heavens themselves begin to declare the glory of God, the greatness of God, the bigness of God, the awesomeness of God. So we look up. And then there's this idea that we look around. And we look around and we see the complexity of life. And we see the complexity of plant life. We see the complexity of animal life. We see the complexity of human life. And as we begin to acknowledge the complexity of life, DNA, all the things that we've discovered about cells and proteins and neutrons and protons and all the building blocks of matter, we begin to hear whispers that point us in the direction of the wisdom and the wonder of God, the creativity of God. We look up, we look around, and it's as if we hear creation whispering to us that there is a God and this is what he's like. And not only that he exists, but, but what he's like, what his character is like. You remember when Jesus, Jesus was talking to his disciples one day and he, he began to look up and he said, hey, look at the birds of the air. And then he looked around and he said, hey, look at the flowers of the field. And from the birds in the air and the flowers of the field, Jesus drew some theological conclusions about God. He said, you know what? God sees. He sees the flowers. He sees the birds. He knows what those flowers and birds need. He cares about those birds and their needs. He cares about the flowers of the field. And God provides for them. And Jesus said, if he does this for the flowers, if he does this for the birds, how much more will your heavenly father do it for you? So even creation is whispering to us about what God is like. And then when you open up the scriptures and you, know, you get to the Old Testament and that can be a little complicated and that can be a little bit tricky, but, but in the Old Testament, it's like we're given metaphor after metaphor after metaphor after metaphor about, hey, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. We're told that God is like a gardener who's patient and caring, working his field in hopes of bringing forth fruit. We're told that God is like a river he is constant, he is powerful, he is raging, and he is life-giving. God is like a shepherd 
that cares for its young, that God is like an eagle that cares for its young. He's the shepherd who guides and leads and provides. He's a mother who's caring and nurturing. He's a father who's gentle and safe. And over and over again, we see these pictures of God. And each metaphor, it's teaching us what God is like. And every metaphor, it begs us to just stop and pause for a moment, to think about the gardener, to think about the river, to think about the eagle and the shepherd and the mother and the father, to think about it and what it means. And to begin to replace wrong thoughts about God with rightful thoughts about God. That God is like a friend, he's faithful and true. He's like a potter who works on a piece of clay, who doesn't throw the clay away, but keeps on working on the clay until he makes the clay into what he desires for it to be. That God is like a rock, he's impervious, he's unchanging. He's like a fortress that we run to in times of danger when we're fleeing from the enemy that's after us. And these pictures, one after the other after the other, they're informative, but they're not complete. They're informative but not complete. And sometimes we're presented with pictures of God, especially in the Old Testament, that for some of us, it seems incompatible with other pictures about God. Sometimes those pictures of God seem incompatible with what we experience about life. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to make sense of it all and we're trying to put it together like a puzzle piece. And, and it's like looking through a real foggy picture, trying to determine, hey, you know, what does God look like? What is he like? And what is he not like? And then you open up the pages of the New Testament. And in the pages of the New Testament, we find Jesus, and Jesus, we find him saying something that's so outrageous, so unthinkable, so blasphemous, that if we truly thought about it and grasped the enormity and the weight of what he said, it would probably take our breath away. Because Jesus of Nazareth showed up in the first century, and he looked at these followers of his, and he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Matter of fact, let's, let's all just say this out loud together. All right, on three. One, two, three. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now that's a big deal. That's bold. <laughs> you don't say something like that unless you're willing to back it up or people are just gonna think you've lost your mind and you've gone completely nuts. Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish guys who have ideas and assumptions and beliefs about God, mainly informed by the Old Testament and those pictures and illusions and shadows that fill the Old Testament. And because of their Old Testament Jewish scriptures, they have put together the best they can these ideas about who God is and what God's like. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm gonna bring the substance of those shadows into the light. I'm gonna bring the substance of those shadows into the light in order to correct misunderstanding and misinformation that many have accepted and adopted to be true when it comes to their beliefs about God. Jesus said, it's very difficult to tell what anybody is truly like by looking at their shadow. It's really difficult to see what someone's really like looking through fog. He says, I have come as the substance of those shadows when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come to bring the substance of those shadows into the light. Jesus wasn't claiming to have the best explanation of God. Jesus was claiming to be the best explanation of God. And what he was saying was this. If you want to know what God is like, then listen to me. Look to me. This is what he was saying. And what he's saying to us and what he's saying to all other people who are considering being followers of Jesus that if you want to know what God is like, 
Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the best way to correct any wrong idea that you may have about God that tags along some, with some really toxic and unhealthy emotions that are connected to those thoughts and assumptions about God, the best way to examine your beliefs about God, Jesus would say, is to look at him, would be to listen to him, to watch him. And matter of fact, the New Testament comes along and agrees with this wholeheartedly, 110%. Paul would say this, that Jesus, the son, is the image of the invisible God. This, this God who is spirit and invisible, that he became flesh. He put an image to the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. So if you wanna know what the invisible God is like, then you look at his visible image. And the visible image of the invisible God is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the writer of Hebrews would say it this way, that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, that's Old Testament, at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through him also the universe. And then he says this, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word, that Jesus is the exact representation of God, that everything we need to know about God, we can find in Jesus. So the point is, if you wanna know what God's like, look to Jesus. If you wanna know what God's like, listen to Jesus. Pay attention, look at what he does, look at what he says, watch how he reacts. Pay close attention to Jesus because he is the substance behind the shadow. He is the exact representation. And when you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. God is Christ-like. That's the teaching of the New Testament. God is Christ-like, and there is not unchrist-likeness at all in God. So if you want to know what God is like, look to Christ. And by looking at Christ, you begin to see and to know and to understand what God is like. Uh, John, who followed Jesus from the very beginning, was a fisherman. He said this, he said, no one has ever seen God. He's invisible, he's spirit. How can you see an invisible spirit? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, that's who's seen, the father, the invisible God, this God who is spirit, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. So this invisible spirit God, which no one has ever seen, John says there's only one who knows him and it's the son. And this son is also God in closest relationship with the Father. And Jesus has come, as John would say in John 1, that the Logos, the Word, became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. That he has made him known that Jesus, he came and he pulled back the curtain on this invisible spirit God. This God that humanity tried to figure out who he was and what he was like through all of these foggy shadows looking through this very dense mist and they couldn't quite figure out what, what are we looking at? What is he like? He says, he has come to pull the curtain back and to show us what God is like. When you've seen him, you have seen the father and he has come to correct your wrong beliefs, my wrong beliefs, your wrong assumptions, the wrong images, those toxic interpretations about who God is and what he's like and what he's gonna do and how he feels about people. He's come to correct all of that. Years later, the same John who wrote this, 
the way I like to imagine it is that once again, uh, towards the end of his, his ministry and towards the end of his life, uh, towards the end of the first century itself, this is years after Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead. John is seemingly contemplating once again the question, you know, who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what he's like? What is he like? And, and maybe he thinks back to what he recorded in John 14, Jesus saying that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Maybe he's thinking about what he wrote in John 1 as the prologue to his biography of Jesus when he said, no one has ever seen God save one, and Jesus the Son has come to make the Father known. Maybe he's thinking about that, all of that. And as he considers, you know, what is God like? What is God like? What is God like? He uses terms like God is liked. He uses, you know, metaphor to show us this is what God's like. And then he gets to the latter part of his letter that we call First John. And I imagine that he begins to, to weigh words. And he begins to play with phrases because he wants to get this right. And he, he, wants to, he wants to write something that's memorable. He wants to write something that's true. He wants to write something that people can grasp and begin to understand. Hey, this is, this is what God is like and this is what it means. So he thinks back to Jesus and he thinks back to the private moments and the public moments. He thinks back to the miracles. He thinks back to the sermons, to the conversations, to his actions and his reactions. And I think he begins to think about what is it that I learn about the Father from the Son? What is it that I learn about God from Jesus? Because to see Jesus is to see God. He's the exact representation. He is the image of the invisible God. And then he writes these words, and you've heard this, these words before. He says, God is love. God is love. John says, I, I think that's it. I think, I think this is the best way to say it. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. When I was with Jesus, when I was around Jesus, this is how I saw him deal with people, all people. God is love. He is the essence. He is the expression. He is the embodiment of love. Love is at the very epicenter of God's character. How do you know that, John? Because it was at the epicenter of Jesus's character. It was the sum total of who he was. And John, it was from Jesus that John began to understand that God loves everyone and that God excludes no one. It was from Jesus that John began to believe that God, his love is without conditions. That's not the way that John was raised. But John began to believe that God, his heavenly father, that his love was without condition. No prerequisites. There was no strings attached to God's love. That's not the way that he was raised. That's not how he was taught. That was not the prevailing idea about the God of the Old Testament, that God loved some people more than he loved others. As a matter of fact, some were just God's enemies. And to say that God loves without condition, that there's no conditions placed on God's love? I mean, just think about that for a moment, that his love is without limits that his love is without end, his love is without discrimination. To think about that, I mean, to really think about that, because again, this is all, many of us were Christian, and this is just, you know, secondhand knowledge. It's, it's, it's so common. We, we hear it, we sing about it, and it's just so commonplace. We miss the gravity of it. We miss the weight of it. We miss the emotion that's attached to it. To think about God's love without condition, without end, without discrimination, without limit, it's mind-blowing. It's overwhelming to think that Christianity did the unthinkable thing by making God's love unconditional. Do you know what's threatening? The idea of unconditional love. Do you know why it's threatening? Because it makes some of us, we're afraid 
that if we really think that God's love is unconditional, then it just gives us a license to do whatever we want to do. But that's not how unconditional love works. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. God's love is unconditional. You know what ours isn't? More times than not unconditional. We have far more conditions on our love than we care to think about and we care to admit. Married people place conditions on their love for each other. Friends place conditions on their love for each other. Sometimes moms and dads place conditions for their love on their children or their grandchildren. We place conditions on each other all the time. Say, I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna be in a relationship with you. We're gonna be good. But I've got some unstated things that as long as you do these things, I've got some unstated things as long as you don't do these things, me and you are good. But the moment that I fail or the moment you fail or somebody doesn't check the box or somebody just totally drops the ball, we live in a world that's so quick to turn around and to walk away because there's conditions on our love. Now we say, oh, you know, I still love them. But to be honest, I hate them. What? Yeah, and we know what we're supposed to say, but how we live oftentimes is something altogether different. You've heard me say this a million times, but I'm never gonna apologize for saying it. What John is getting to is this idea about God that says there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Because God doesn't love you based on who you are. God loves you based on who he is. Now think about that. God doesn't love you because of who you are. God doesn't love me because of who I am. God loves me and God loves you and God loves us and God loves the world because of who he is. Now that's a really great thought because that's freeing. That's amazing. That's empowering. That's reassuring. That's encouraging. That at not one time in my life has God ever loved me because of who I am or what I've done. But God has always loved me because of who he is. That's who he is. He is love. He's the essence. He is the embodiment of love. And John says, God is love. That's it. That nothing will ever change the way that God feels about you. Nothing will ever change the fact that God loves you. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. That God showed us what Jesus was like through the stories that he told. That God's like the father who welcomes the prodigal back home. He's like the shepherd that left the 99 to go find the one that was lost. That, that Jesus showed us what God was like, not only by the stories he told, but also by the lessons that he taught. And Jesus taught his followers, hey, if you wanna be like your father in heaven, show mercy and give forgiveness. Show mercy and give forgiveness to those who do you wrong, even to your enemy. And when you treat your enemy with love, mercy, and grace, you are never more like your heavenly father than in that moment. Jesus said, by this one thing, will, will people say that you're my disciples, that you love others the way that I've loved you? Because he taught us that at the heart of who God is, is love. And then it's by what he did, he showed us what God was like. He, he ate with the excluded. He, he ate with the misfits. He ate with those who had been excommunicated from the temple. He shared water with a promiscuous Samaritan woman. Uh, when, when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery and they threw, him down, threw her down at Jesus' feet, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And every time Jesus had an interaction with somebody, every time Jesus spoke a word, he was pulling back the curtain and he was showing us something about God. And then, According to John, that Jesus gave us the clearest demonstration of what God was like on the cross. 
He says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. John would say that on the cross, we see how far sin will go, how nasty sin is, how evil sin is. But on the cross, we see how far God is willing to go to save sinners. We see on the cross a God who is loving, a God who is actively saving those who are rebelling and rejecting him and putting him to death. As his enemies were killing him, Jesus was actively working to take away their sin. And John said, if you want to know what God is like, just turn to the cross. If you want to know what you should believe to be true about God, about how God thinks about you, how God thinks about the world, how God thinks about them, how God thinks about the lowest common denominator. If you want to know how God feels about those people you struggle loving most, Father, forgive them. He pled for their forgiveness. He died for their forgiveness. He allowed himself to be sacrificed for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those who put him to death, he prayed for their forgiveness. He died for their forgiveness. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other because how we think about God ultimately it seeps down to how we treat each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. If you wanna bring God near somebody, then you love them the way that Christ has loved you. If you want to express God to this world, then you begin to show the grace and the mercy and the love that you see Jesus extending to even his enemies on the cross. He says, then God will come near. And again, it was Jesus who said, by this one thing will people know that you follow me. It's when you love one another. This is how you shorten the distance between the world and God. This is how we let light shine. This is how we're salt. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us. How do we know? The cross. And we have put our trust in his love. And he says it again, God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect or mature. So we will, listen to this, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Is there a day of judgment? Yes. Will there be a day when the living and the dead stand before God? Yes. Will there be a day when the dead graves burst open and people are gonna be called to stand in front of God, the judge? Yes. But we trust in his love so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence, not with guilt, not with shame, not with uncertainty because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. John says, when you think about God, if there's something that makes you afraid, if there's something that makes you run away, if there's something that makes you feel uncertain, insecure, if there's something that makes you feel unloved, 
If there's something that makes you feel as though you're not worthy, that you could never be accepted, if there's something that makes you fear death because of what God may have waiting for you on the other side of death, he says, you have yet to understand who God is and you have failed to understand God's love. Jesus, he shows us that God is love. And when we understand who God is, John says, when we begin to understand the love of God and grasp the love of God, we begin to shake off the guilt and the fear and the shame that so many of us carry around because of our misunderstandings about God. So many Christians fearful of the future, fearful of that day when we stand before Jesus, when we stand before God. I can remember as a kid, I don't know if you ever thought this, but, it, but the second coming of Jesus was not to be excited about. It was terrifying. Don't look at me like you're, you know, lived on another planet than I did. I mean, it was horrible. It's like, you know, you should pray even so come Jesus, even, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I'm back there in the back saying, even so do not come quickly, Lord Jesus. I need more time. I got to undo some things. I got to change, you know, it's like, and it was this idea that we're going to stand before God and there's going to be these jumbotrons and God is going to show everybody all the things that we ever did wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm back there thinking, oh God, I, I, I'd just rather go to hell. I'd rather just go to hell. I, my mom doesn't need to see that. God and grandmother, grandmother, I, God, would you wait until you restore her sight uh, until after, you know, the jumbotron goes off. And it's like this idea that we're all going to stand before God naked and we're all going to be embarrassed and humiliated. And it's like, What? And it was like, oh my God, I, I recoil from that. I, I don't want a part of that. And then you begin to understand the love of God and you begin to understand the gospel and you begin to understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Not to throw them back at us in some future date. That our sin has been covered. It has been cast into the sea. God re remembers it no more. He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't treat us according to our sin. If I understand the gospel correctly, my account is clear. It is clear, just as if I never sinned, just as if you never sinned. He took my sin and God gave me Christ's righteousness. And now the only thing that is on my account is a life as though I had lived like Jesus, always obeyed, never sinned, because Jesus took my sin and my disobedience and my guilt and my shame, and he bore it on the cross so that I could receive his righteousness. No wonder Paul said, who can lay any charge on God's elect? No, we are more than conquerors through Christ who has loved us. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear eternity. I don't have to fear how God thinks about me or feels about me. I don't have to live in limbo because I know that God delights in me. I am his handiwork. I'm his masterpiece. I am his trophy of grace and his trophy of mercy. I don't have to be afraid of where me and God stand. I don't have to walk on eggshells. I don't have to live in uncertainty. Me and God are good. My relationship with God is one of assurance and security. So I don't have to wake up in the morning and worry, are me and God good? Where do I stand? No, I'm good with God, not because I'm good, but because he's good. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, that was good. I'm good with God, not because of what I've done, but because of what God in Christ has done for me. And John wraps it up and he says, you know what? We love each other because he loved us first. He took the initiative. 
he made the first move. And I'll, I'll drop it here, I'll leave it here. It's like the apostle Paul said, even before he made the world, God loved us. Before there was anything, God had already placed his love on you. When God looked into the future, before any of humanity was created, he knew what every life would do. He knew every choice of every person in every generation. He knew the best and the worst. He saw it all. And before he ever breathed life into humanity, God loved us. He chose us. So you don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to be afraid of when you stand before God. Jesus would be the one who would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes, not behaves, whoever believes would never perish but have eternal life. That God, the one that we learn about because of Jesus is a God who cares more about sinners than he does their sin. He's a God who cares more about rule breakers than the rules that they have broken. And when God looks at you, he loves you. He always has, he always will. If your idea about who God is and what God is like, if it doesn't look like Jesus, you've got the wrong idea about God. If you wanna know what your heavenly father is like, just look to his son. In just a moment, we're gonna sing this song that it's a few years old. It's how he loves us. And, and there's a lyric in this song that, you know, kind of made a lot of people uncomfortable. It says that heaven and earth met together like a sloppy wet kiss. And for some reason, people thought it was, you know, some type of allusion to something romantic between a woman and a man. and when really it's, it's the father who leans over to a runny nose, little boy or little daughter, who's just a mess. And that little son, that little daughter leans in to kiss their father. And it's messy, it's a little nasty, but that father pulls that mess close. And it's a sloppy wet kiss because how much the father loves that child. Doesn't matter how much mess you've got. Doesn't matter what life's look like, what it's gonna look like. He loves you and there's freedom in that. There's joy in that. Father, with our eyes closed, our heads bowed, would you speak to us? Let us hear what we need to hear. So many of us walking around with guilt and shame lacking security and assurance in our relationship with God, always wondering where we stand, how we are, what God thinks about us, how God feels about us. Speak to our hearts today. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your savior, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus and you've never received his gift of love and grace and mercy, right there where you are, know that you are loved. God knows you and he loves you anyway just like he does us. 
And I wanna give you an opportunity to pray to receive Christ just now. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for proving your love for me on the cross. Today, right now, I receive your love, your grace, your mercy. Save me, change me. Give me a home in heaven, I pray. In Jesus' name.